Sarah Jama is censured and dropped from ONDP caucus. Ottawa police cleared in a man's murder. New Brunswick judge who sided with the landlord over a massive rent hike is a landlord herself. Canada is fighting an Indigenous nation in the U.S. who wants Enbridge's Line 5 shut down. And violence in Rio de Janeiro as dozens of buses, trucks and a train are torched by paramilitary organized crime. Good morning. It's Tuesday, October 24th. I'm Nora. Here are your headlines. Before we begin, here is an update about Sarah Jama. The Hamilton Centre MPP was kicked out of the Ontario NDP caucus yesterday, reportedly for quote-unquote surprising the leadership and making the workplace quote-unquote unsafe for ONDP staff. One report said that the surprise was that she described Israel's siege of Gaza as apartheid. Then she was censured by the legislature from a motion served by Doug Ford. She now sits as an independent who cannot speak and who can't sit on committees. This is a stunning attack on democracy as Gemma is well within her right to name accurately the situation in Israel as apartheid. But that was enough for her to be dropped both by her own party and by the Legislative Assembly of Ontario. I hope the people of Hamilton Centre rally around her and that this is finally the beginning of the end of such a useless political entity. But more importantly, the attack on JAMA by Doug Ford is a worrying advance in the attack on free speech in this country. Next, to Ottawa. Ontario's Special Investigations Unit cleared two police officers in Ottawa for murdering a man in the city's Byward Market. Someone called police due to a man who was apparently waving around a knife and lunging at cars. Because cars are people, police showed up and... Well, the story from CBC News skips right to a witness hearing multiple gunshots and then seeing a man lying on the street. That's how it's written. The unbylined piece from CBC News reads as if it was copied directly from a police press release. But where a lot of these things are directly copied from a police press release, the benefit of this story is that there's an entire SIU report that details moment by moment what happened. For some reason, CBC News decided to write this in the passive voice, making it very, very hard for the reader to understand what happened. We go from police arriving to a situation, to a passerby hearing gunshots, and then to police notifying the SIU, and doesn't actually say why. Then, in the article, two forensic investigators arrive eight hours later to, quote, find a pool of blood in the street surrounded by medical equipment and debris, unquote. At this point in the article, we don't know what these two officers who have been charged by the SIU have to do with anything. Further down, we find out that a cop pointed his gun at the man and told the man to drop the knife he was holding. Then another cop grabbed his taser. 
The man holding the knife, quote unquote, advanced quickly towards the three officers who were standing there because the three officers have no idea how to safely restrain a single person. One cop tased him, and when that didn't work, the two others shot him. CBC News made the editorial decision to write this in the passive voice, as I said, making it hard to understand what actually happened. And it is absolutely inexcusable considering the detail that is in the report. The article should have started with these details and to avoid getting a failing grade from a first year journalism class, whoever wrote this could have put it in the active voice. Anyway, the SAU found that shooting the man dead was reasonable because he had a knife. Next to New Brunswick, where the CBC's Robert Jones is reporting that a Court of King's Bench Justice Catherine Gregory may have had a conflict in a case where she sided with a landlord who is challenging his right to jack up rent increases. Gregory, it turns out, is a landlord herself and owns a five-unit apartment building in Fredericton. This doesn't automatically put her in a conflict. The dean of Lakehead University's law school, Jula Hughes, said that in a situation like this, it might be a better look to have a judge who isn't a landlord hear such a case. But you really got to hear the details of this case to appreciate why people are questioning whether or not this judge may have been in a conflict. It takes a bit in the article to actually get to what was going on here, um, but it's a very well-written and very well-reported article. I suggest that you check it out if you're interested in landlords in New Brunswick and judges being not great. Earlier this year, two tenants challenged their landlord when he tried to increase the rent by $200 per month. They were using a new policy that allows tenants to have rental increases reviewed that are higher than 7.3%. In case you're assuming that they were paying like $3,000 in rent and that $200 per month was kind of reasonable, well, no, this is New Brunswick. Their rent was $860 and $900 per month. Local officials found the $200 rental increase was reasonable when challenged because everyone else's rent was already basically as high in the neighborhood. And side note, this is how rents rise in Canada. Literally, it's just landlords seeing how much they can charge, relying on any argument they can think of. And so here it's, well, the average rent is higher, so I want mine to be higher too. Anyway, while it was allowed for the landlord to jack the rent by $200, the housing officer adjudicating the challenge did impose a phased-in rental increase. So rather than increasing it in a single month, they said that the landlord had to do it over three years. The landlord challenged this, and when it landed in front of Judge Gregory, she ruled with the landlord, saying that it was fair to screw their tenants with a $200 increase in a single month. Gregory's unit, reports Jones, was purchased with an ex-spouse in 2002, and she took sole ownership over it in 2013. Jones spoke to one tenant at the building who said that it's mostly a student residence where rooms are rented for $600 and tenants have shared washroom and kitchen facilities. Jones writes that judges are discouraged from operating businesses when they're appointed to the bench, and depending on how involved Gregory is in managing the apartments, she might be in violation of provincial policy that relates to judges. But if it's just a passive investment, she might not be. Next to national news from James McCartan at the Canadian Press. Canada is trying to use a treaty from 1977 with the United States to stop the shutdown of the Line 5 pipeline. The Bad River Band of the Lake Superior Chippewas, located in Wisconsin, have been fighting the pipeline over environmental and human rights risks. 
The treaty was intended to stop the disruption of the flow of oil and gas between Canada and the United States on Line 9, but McCartan calls the treaty outdated and dormant. Canada isn't operating alone. It isn't just Canada challenging this. They are working alongside Enbridge, who owns the pipeline. The case is filed in a Wisconsin district court. The issue is that Line 5 poses a great risk to the Straits of Mackinac in the Great Lakes. Something as simple as being struck by an anchor from a passing ship could cut open the line and cause an environmental disaster. Line 5 carries about 540,000 barrels of oil and natural gas a day across Wisconsin and Michigan over to Sarnia's Chemical Valley, which, by the way, is also one of the most polluted places in Canada and where the Amjanang First Nation have been fighting against environmental racism for years. The Bad River Band wants the pipeline that passes through its territory shut down. About 19 kilometers of Line 9 passes through its territory. They challenge the right of the pipeline to pass through their territory at all, and they argue that an agreement signed in 1992 was exploitative. That agreement promised the band just 0.3% of the net profits that Enbridge makes from Line 5. So much for reconciliation, eh, guys? And finally, to Rio de Janeiro, where people connected to paramilitary organized crime torched at least 36 buses, four trucks, and a train in retaliation for the murder of Mateus da Silva Renzende by police special forces. He was one of the leaders of the paramilitary, and it was called the quote-unquote Lord of War, reports The Guardian. Rezende was just 24 years old and is the nephew of Luis Antonio da Silva Braga, a paramilitary chief. 45 schools had to close in the area as a result of the attacks. Some of the militias have seized parts of Rio over the past two decades and control them. Claudio Castro, the governor of Rio, who is right-wing, called the attacks terror acts. Twelve people were arrested after them. The group was started by many off-duty cops and prison guards who formed to provide self-defense in different neighborhoods in Rio. Now they control an area that has nearly 1.7 million residents. Those are your headlines for Tuesday, October 24th. I'm Nora. It's Tuesday. It's Sandy and Nora Day. Listen, I'm going to give you a bit of the sausage making uh, inner look right now. It is not yet edited and I have to head to the the QP convention today. So if you're at the QP convention, as I said yesterday, come check me out. I will be editing Sandy and Nora and, you know, God willing, I will get this episode out as I normally do on Tuesday. You're listening to this podcast at sandyandnora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great Tuesday.